Good morning, church. So great to see you this morning. If you have your Bible, the book of James is where we're going to be today. If you are new with us, my name is Jordan Johnson. Have the joy of serving as our lead pastor and one of our elders here at PVC. And if you are a first-timer, a second-timer, or it's been a while-timer, uh, we are so glad to have you with us today. We love to walk through books of the Bible. Uh, we believe when God's Word is open, God is talking. And so we want to take just chunks of verses, read them, explain them, illustrate them, apply them, and believe that it is the Word of God that is going to strengthen us, it's going to mature us, it's going to build us up, it's going to challenge us, and simultaneously encourage us. So if you're new with us, great time for you to hop in with us in the study. We've just completed verse 1, so as in our reading, chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, for today. Title of our sermon is The Purpose of Pain. The Purpose of Pain. Uh, last week, I called this book The Show Me Book. Uh, we talked about the show me state, and what the author James is asking us throughout this book is, if you say that you're a believer, and, and just let me hear you, dear friends, if you're a Christian and you would say, amen, would you say, Amen. So the Bible in the book of James is going to say, well, show us. You say that you're a Christian. You say that you're resting right now, faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. If you say that's you, then James is not going to let you get away with saying that but not living that. And James is not going to let me get away with that, that we are to display our faith through our works. Hence the subtitle, active faith. Our faith is active. It's not static. It must be fleshed out. It's not some abstract idea. I get on my social account, are you a Christian? Yep, I check that box and I'll move on with my life. The Bible knows nothing about that kind of Christianity. What the Bible knows is that you are going to say it and then it's not your works or your, 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 your virtues that make you saved or even keep you saved, but they give evidence that your faith is resting in Christ alone. You are not saved, dear friend, by works, but you are saved to a faith that works. Don't miss that. You're not saved by works, but your faith will always display itself as a mom, as a dad, as a husband, as a wife, as a person walking through a divorce, as a single person, as a widow, it's going to flesh itself out. And where it doesn't, James, in the 108 verses that we're going to look at over the next 16, might I add, very uncomfortable weeks, but uncomfortable in the best of ways, you are going to be called out multiple times, multiple times. And blessed be the God who doesn't just save us, but continues to chisel us. Now, if I were to ask you this morning, how many of you want to be like Jesus? How many of you want to be more like Jesus? Amen. Amen. But if I ask you this question, secondly, do you want some more trials? You probably wouldn't get your hand up so fast. And yet, what James is going to teach us today is the path 
to becoming more like Jesus is not around trials, but actually through trials, and that God the Holy Spirit, both in you and then through you in the midst of what feels like sometimes hell on earth, is actually maturing you to look, talk, act, think, watch this, and react more like Jesus Christ. And yet, if I ask you if you want more trials and you said yes, we would question your sanity because most of us are not signing up for more trials, especially given the fact that I know where many of you are at today, you are sitting in the midst of a great trial. And the last thing in your mind, uh, logically thinking, is I want more of that or a deeper experience of that. But what is true for all of us is right now you are either in a trial, you're coming out of a trial, or you're about to get into a trial that you have no idea what's about to happen. There may be a call at four o'clock. I don't hope that for you. But there is the reality all of us to varying degrees are in one, coming out of one, are getting ready to go in one, and yet what God has promised via the Word of God is it's not purposeless, it's not for nothing, it's not just because God just likes to see you suffer, it's because God wants to use those friends to mature us greatly. Now, James, as we noted last week, is the half-brother of Jesus, the writer of this letter. He came to faith after seeing Jesus in his resurrected state. He thought Jesus was nuts growing up, but when he saw Jesus came back from the dead, talk about an aha moment where you think, boy, was I wrong, and he believed he became a fiery leader of the church, so much so in Acts chapter 15, James is the brother that steps up and says, to be a Christian you don't have to become a Jew. To be a Christian, you must put faith alone in Christ alone. And, and James was a pillar, the Apostle Paul says, along with Cephas. He's a, a pillar in the church. And James is a good pastor, though, because one thing you'll notice in James 1, 1 is a very short introduction. And in verse 2, he gets right to business. And again, in the 108 verses that we have in the letter, 60 of those are going to be commands. This is why we call the book of James the Proverbs of the New Testament, because he's going to give command after command after command after command. And this is the first of 60 that he's going to give us for the next 16 weeks. But the reason that he starts with trials is because he's a really good pastor, this was a congregation of Jewish Christians who were experiencing persecution, experiencing loss, experiencing hardship, experiencing relocation, experiencing sickness and all the like. And so James, after he says, I'm James, now let me address and let me help and let me give you some tools, some handles for you to look at your present reality and actually see the Lord using them as Jewish Christians, dispersed all over the ancient world so that you'll grow up in the faith. And friends, the Holy Spirit, who is a divine author, James is a human author, but the Holy Spirit is the divine author, he is going to use this text today to grow you up, okay? He's going to use this to make us a little tougher. And I just want to be honest with you, some of us need to toughen up 
toughen up. And I say that tenderly, but we need to toughen up when it comes to growing up in the faith. And James is going to help us do that today. There's three things we're going to see. And before we jump in here, I want to ask God to help us, friends. Let's plead with God for help this morning in prayer, and then we're going to jump in. Lord, oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We thank you that one day that your glory will be all over the world, as many as the sands of the sea and the stars in the sky. You made that promise to Abraham so many years ago, and in the gospel, we thank you, God, that that is going to be fulfilled. And so we ask you by this text, these three little verses, that what we do not know, would you teach us, O God? What we do not have, would you give us? And what we are not, please make us. We ask it for the sake of your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and by the Spirit. And everybody said, there is one God, and we are not He. And what that means is you cannot control what trials are going to come into your life. But by God's grace, you can You can and you must control the way that you respond to the trials that you have no control of. And that's the first point I want you to see in verse 2. If you have a bulletin in the outline, is there is a response. And that's what James wants to help his readers, to learn how to respond to trials. They're a part of life. They're going to happen. You can't control them. And yet, you must learn, I must learn to discipline ourselves to respond the way that God would have us. So, count it all joy, verse 2. And notice my brothers. And this should say my brothers and sisters. So, this is the church, the people of God. Count it all joy, church, those whose faith is in Christ alone. Count it all joy, my brothers. Notice when. Right in your margin, not if. When, not if. When you meet various trials. Now, the word trial here, it means hardship, bad news, cancer, pain, loss, angst, tragedy, disappointment, infidelity, and a whole slew of things. That's what a trial is. Like we sing in the song, when when a thorn, it keeps needling you, and it keeps pressing on you. This is captured in the word trial. This is why some of your translations use the word test, test. And we'll see next week, it's the same Greek word for temptation. It's all about context. Right now, he's not talking about being tempted to sin. He'll talk about that next week. Because when you're in the middle of a trial, what you want to do is sin. And he's going to talk about how to deal with that. But for today, he's using this word trial or this word test, and he's using it in a way that captures whatever is hard in your life. Everybody know what I'm talking about? Whatever is hard right now, that's your trial. Or like if you put all the ingredients together and you swirled it up into a smoothie and you drink it, that would be your trial, the loss, the pain, the hardship, the, 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 whatever it is. But notice he says various. It's a Greek word, multicolored. In other words, trials come in different shades. 
Trials come in all shapes and all sizes. You may be sitting next to your trial right now. I don't know. But it means many colored. And the word meat here is very critical for you to understand this. Meat means to fall into. To fall into. You remember in Luke chapter 10, the gentleman who was on his way to Jericho, and it says that he fell into thieves, and then he got robbed and beat up. Remember that? He fell into. That's the word meat here. And, and i.e., it's unexpected. It's unplanned. It, I, I didn't see that coming. I didn't wake up today and plan to get robbed. That would be you fell into, from your perspective, it feels like, where did that come from? I just fell into that. You're driving down the road, and you hit a bump and your tire burst and you were already like almost late for work and now you're really late for work and now you've got a call and it's embarrassing, you've got to walk in and I've been late already and all of that, that you fell into it. Now, from God's perspective, you didn't fall into it because he's sovereign, but from your perspective, you fell into it. It was unexpected and that is the nature of a trial. It's, I did not see that coming. Now, this word count here um, 108 verses, 60 of them commands. This is the first command in the letter. Count. Would you say count? Now the rest of us. Would you say count? This is a command. And the idea here is think. 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 Think before you react. So when you fall into a trial, when from your perspective, it's like, where did that come from? James' directive to you and to me is think now. Count now, consider, it's a mathematical term, okay? It's mathematics here. It's the idea of add everything up, add, add everything up that you know right now and think about what you're going through. Think about what you are experiencing and this is what you should be thinking when you enter this trial. How can I glorify God and become more like Jesus in this trial? That's what you should be thinking when, when it hits you. How can I glorify God in this? Got a flat tire. I'm on the side of the road. You understand? How can I glorify God in this? And second of all, how can I react and grow in becoming more like Jesus? And I'm stranded out here on 480. And nobody will pick up the phone. That's what you should be counting right then. That's what you should be thinking. You've added it all up. This is hard, but God is good. This doesn't make sense, but God is sovereign. You're adding all that stuff up that you know to be true, and you're thinking. So I want you to be mindful of this as well. You cannot do this on your own. apart from the person and the work of the Holy Spirit in and through your life. Walking in obedience to the commands of God, whether it's this command or the 59 others we're going to look at, you cannot do them apart from the person and work of the Holy Spirit in and through your life. So be mindful as I exhort you to these things. I'm not asking you to call upon your willpower. I'm not asking you to call upon your education or your ability. No, in the moment, you're calling upon spiritual power and spiritual strength that comes only from the Spirit of God as He has 
brought you in union with the Lord Jesus Christ. The only hope you have, friend, of becoming more like Jesus is in the moment asking the Spirit to do what He does, and that is make Jesus bigger and greater in your mind in the moment. And what you're going to find out is that Jesus is always so much bigger than you ever thought He was. That's what I'm amazed by when I go through a trial and I ask God to glorify himself, and I ask God to make me more like Jesus, and then what God does is the guy who comes to help me fix the, 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 the tire, I end up having a gospel conversation with him, the man calls upon the name of the Lord, and he's saved, and now I'm like, wow, I wouldn't have had the flat tire that caused me all this stress, this man wouldn't have come to know Christ, and, and friends, this is what God will do, and you'll get up and you'll drive away, and you're smiling now. Because you saw Jesus and you saw God in a situation that you thought he was so far from. Now, I want to remind you of this, and please, if you're going to sleep, you got to hear this. There is one sealing of the Holy Spirit. When God saved you, you got all of the Holy Spirit you're ever going to get. Now the venture and the focus of your life is making sure that he has all of you. So there is one ceiling, there is many fillings. You don't get more of the Spirit when the Spirit fills you, he gets more of you because you have all of him. But now when you say, fill me with the Spirit, now he fills you And to be filled with the Spirit means I'm surrendered now to God's good plan and purpose in my life. Outside of the Spirit giving you those, what what John Owen called the spectacles of the Holy Spirit, you cannot see life that way. So you're sealed one time, bro. You're sealed one time, sister. But there are many fillings. In other words, when you encounter a trial, the first thing you should think is, Lord, fill me with your Spirit. That's what you should say. Fill me with your spirit. Because without his person and his work in your life, you will cuss, fuss, and complain or do something worse. But when you yield to him and you ask him for filling, he will give you perspective. And he'll not just give you perspective, he'll give you the power to live this out in a way that is pleasing and honoring to God. So the goal of life now is to yield control. Lord, fill me with your spirit. Now, when you meet a trial, if you don't ask God, the Holy Spirit, to fill you, you got to do that, friend. Get ready. When you leave here, you're going to get to do it. Trials are coming. They're coming. So right when it happens, Lord, fill me with your... If you get nothing else today, get that. Lord, fill me with your Spirit. If you don't do that, there's six bad responses I want to show you very, very fast. Number one, bitterness. Remember Naomi in the book of Ruth when we studied with that great book? Naomi says, don't even call me Naomi anymore. Call me bitter. God's hand is against me. And you get bitter. You get bitter. Second of all, envy. Sometimes when you're in a trial, you you, you begin to look at the lives of others and get jealous, right? Why don't they go through this? I mean, man, I'm I'm, I'm trying to give my all for the Lord, and this guy didn't even attend church, didn't even love the Lord, and yet it all breaks loose in my life, and 
you, you begin to envy, you begin to get jealous, and you begin to say crazy things like, I wish my wife would act like that, or I wish my spouse would act like that, or I wish my kids were like that, or I wish I had that job, or I wish I had this. Or that. You, get bitter, you get bitter, and then you get envious. Third of all, self-pity. It turns into woe is me party. You ever thrown a pity party and only you show up? It's a woe is me party. Everything's about me right now. Fourth of all, a functional Savior. Something or someone other than Jesus, you look to that to comfort you, to cope with. It could be overeating, could be illegal drugs, could be excessive drink, whatever kind that is, could be too much caffeine, could be sexual sin, could be entertainment, hobbies, a surgery to alter your body some way because that'll fix me. More work, laziness, a person, a place, a thing, an object. You'll have some functional savior. I'm in this trial right now, and if I could just have this or that, I'd feel better about it. And this, number five, is identity. This is basically where your trial becomes your identity, and you begin to identify, my name is Jordan, and I'm a whatever. This is why our friends at AA get it wrong. Because I'm telling you, as a believer, your identity is not in your sin. Your identity is in your Savior. Your identity is that I'm a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yes, I struggle with this. And yes, I struggle with that. But I don't primarily identify with my sin. It's not my identity. The fact that I'm going through this. So when you're going through a long season trial, yeah, you want to be upfront and talk to people about it, but at the same time, you also want to keep looking to hope in Jesus or you'll just be known as that person who's just always, I got this, I got this, I got this. And people begin to identify you not as a follower of Jesus, they identify you with your sin. And you've done that. I've done that. So we've got to constantly be helping people understand my sin, my trial, it's not my identity. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And finally, despair. And of course, this will get all of us at some point. A lot of us can't handle the first wave, but it's when they just keep, poof, 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 despair sits in. And despair is total absence of joy and complete loss of hope. See, some of the, the readers of this letter, they were in danger of completely losing hope. And James is saying it is possible to maintain joy in Jesus even though I'm going through this hard thing. And so he says, if you look back at verse 1, count it all joy. Now, James doesn't say this is the only response to trials, but you can have real joy. And the reason you can have joy, two, two words here, all right, because joy is spiritual, remember this, and joy, big word, is eschatological. Joy is spiritual. What do I mean? When you became a believer, one of the great doctrines that you need to learn more about and I need to relish in more is the doctrine of union with Christ. Spiritual joy is not touched by physical circumstances. So your joy is connected to Jesus, okay? And your connection to Jesus cannot be hurt or diminished one iota because your joy, your glee, your hat, it's not found in those things. It's spiritual. That's why some people can go through like, whoa, and they model such 
joy because their joy is spiritual. But the second word is it's eschatological. That's a big word, but it just means future. One day Jesus is coming, amen, and there will be no more trials, no weeping, no pain, no breakups, no infidelity, no murder, none of that. And so we look to that day, don't we? We look for Jesus now to spiritually sustain us as we look one day to the eschatological reality that trials will be no more in the day to come. And and anytime you're going through a trial, obviously you're going to dial in to your spiritual union with Jesus, but you always have a nod to the future, right? You're always thinking, this is evidence that this is not my home. This is evidence that this thing is broken. It's evidence that this world is on life support, and this is not where I'm finally going to end up. My joy is in Jesus, and my joy is in what is to come. So trials are spiritual, they're eschatological. But I want to tell you something. James is not telling us to celebrate when bad things happen, or that you are supposed to enjoy suffering. That's sick. But rather, rather, in the suffering, there is a well of joy to drink from. A well of joy. A well of joy. Because the trial God is using to produce something really, really good. And the good is that I'm becoming more like Jesus, and that brings me joy, even though I don't like the fact that this hurts and it's painful. And that's the tension that we have as believers. The Apostle Paul said it this way, uh, 2 Corinthians 6.12. He said, I'm always, I'm sorrowful. This is what he says. I am sorrowful, but I'm always rejoicing. Simultaneously, I'm suffering, but I'm rejoicing. I wish that I could tell you that that wasn't the Christian life, but the Christian life is you are suffering while you're also having joy. That is, if you want to see, you, you, that may sound spiritually schizophrenic, but if you read the book of Psalms, And you see in the same verse, David will have joy, and yet he will say, God, I feel like you abandoned me. Because, and if you have any, like as a pastor, as I meet with people, one person comes in, and we leave high-fiving, like almost spiritually bumping chest, man, God is good, Jesus has saved you, isn't this great? Go get them. Praise the Lord. The next person comes in, they just lost somebody. And it's like, cry. And then the next person comes in, I gotta wipe my tears off because we're celebrating a salvation. But that's life. It's life in a post-Eden world. Joy, rejoicing, yet sorrowful. This life is filled with all those things. Uh, Sam Rutherford said it well when he said, the Puritan said, when I find myself in the cellar of affliction, I discover that the king's best wine is in the basement so true. Wine in the Bible is a symbol for joy. It's a euphemism for joy. And when you think it's just so bad and you get so down the dumps, that's some of the greatest times for you to to, to just completely immerse yourself in the joy of all that God is for you in Jesus. And I got to tell you, this is what Paul talked about, that when he talked about fellowshipping with Christ and his suffering. I want to give a word of caution here before we go on. We need to be careful how we use Bible verses. Uh, This is not the first verse you want to point some people to that are experiencing a tragic accident. Oh, you fell asleep? You totaled your car? You broke your neck? You have no insurance? Oh, man, 
Count it joy. We need to be careful. There is a season, the Bible says, for everything. There's a time to grieve. There's a time to weep. There's a time to pray. There's a time to be quiet and just sit there. When Jesus sees Lazarus in John chapter 11, and he weeps, he doesn't say, you guys all, you know, dried up and get out of here. It's just, no, he, 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 he screamed, the Son of God did, at the top of his lungs because of the pain in front of him. So we need to be very dialed into the Spirit when we counsel people that, yes, this is true, and yes, we're going to get to this, but it may not be the knee-jerk verse that you're going to point someone to. So trust the Spirit to give you the guidance you need in the moment, but be mindful how you use Bible verses. See, what James is doing here just in this little verse is he is helping us see this is the way we should view the world. It's not just some happenstance or circumstance that we use. We're always rejoicing in the midst of suffering. This is what we're always doing as the people of God. And we should respond by saying, fill me with your spirit. God, glorify yourself in this situation and then allow him to do so. Second of all, there's a reason. There's a reason. This is the second point. Here's the reason why you do it. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The way you experience joy is because you know something. This word know here is not book knowledge. This word know here is experiential knowledge. In other words, as a believer, you can count up mathematically all that you're going through because you know, based on walking with the Lord, based on being with him, you know it to be true that he's testing your faith right now because he wants to produce steadfastness or endurance in you. Some of us in this room, watch this now, some of us in this room have walked through the loss of pain and hurt and misunderstanding and you're in this room today, and you're singing these songs today, and you're praising God today, not because the pain is gone, but because God has enabled you to trust Him. God has enabled you to keep trusting that God is doing something good in you and good in the situation, even right now when you physically, you don't like knowledge know it, but you experientially, experientially know it from walking many years with the Lord. And God proves himself, does he not? God proves himself that he's testing you, and that God is shaping you. And friends, this is the Christian life. And, and as you and I experience trials in life, the older we get, the harder the trials will get. Now, I think that's something that often is not spoken about. But the, I think a lot of people think, as I get older in the Lord, things will get a little bit easier. No, it just changes. But the reason God tests you even harder as you get older is because He's built stamina in you. He's built you up. Kind of like a marathon runner, right? You can't just run a 5K on day one. You've got to get some app and do training for 5K that takes about 90 days, run a little, walk a little, you build up stamina. And now you can handle more and more and more. And this is the way of faith. God 
He puts you through stuff. You pass the test by depending on his grace, and he grows you. And then he tests you again, and he tests you again, and he tests you again, not to destroy you, but to embolden you. So if right now you're like, man, I'm however many years old, and I've never experienced this. Well, experience it now. Because God has got you ready for this. He has equipped you for this trial. He's put spiritual meat on your bones. He's built stamina in you. And you think, you look at someone who's going through such craziness, and you're like, I could never go through that. Maybe not. Maybe because you've not had the stamina built into you. You don't know where they've been through. You don't know what God has brought them through. As our, 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 my good friend says, you, you see the glory, but you don't know the story that got this person to where they're at, where their bandwidth and their spiritual toughness, man, they just seem bulletproof. They're not arrogant about it, though. They're gracious about it. They're humble about it. But they just keep walking, keep trusting, keep going. God wants to mature us. And the trials at 60, I believe, are going to be more difficult than the trials at 20. 20 year olds, you think it's hard now? Just wait. 12 year old, you think it's hard in school right now? Just wait. But God is gracious, He does not leave you where He finds you. The way that he builds you and grows you, again, is not around hard stuff, but by taking you right in the teeth of it and giving you the strength to push through it and be more like Jesus for it. And now the next test is going to be more difficult. And guess what? When you fail the test, guess what you get to do? You get to take it over. And some of us have been stuck on the same test for years because when it gets hard, we run away. When it gets hard, we change churches. When it gets hard, we want to get a divorce. When it gets hard, we want to do whatever. And yet God is calling you today, brother or sister. He is building something in you. He is strengthening you. He's making you have some grit about you. And this is what he does. The question is, are you going to remain faithful in the fire? This word steadfastness here means to remain under. The idea is when it gets tough, you just stay put. You just stay under it. You stay under it. So that God can produce what he wants from it. You don't run from it. You stay under it. The question is, are we going to? In the midst of my trial, your question should not be, how do I get out of this? That should not be your question. Your question should be, how does the Holy Spirit want me right now to fix my eyes on Jesus so I can grow up? Spiritually. Can we just admit that we live in a very weak culture? Can we just admit that? Most people don't know what hard is. And can I submit to you, we live in a very weak Christian culture? Where you just put a little fire on some people and they run for the hills? Let me ask you this. What does it take to discourage you? What does it take to discourage you? You don't measure a person by what happens to them. You measure a person by what discourages them. Is it just one ball not bouncing your way at the HOA in your home development? And now you want to throw a big tizzy? 
Is it one-off comment someone says about you? Maybe on social media or maybe in person or maybe you heard about does that Does that discourage you? Does that get you off track? A little strep throat? Hello. Does that, get you, does that just finally wipe you out, take you down? Is it a difficult supervisor? Oh, I'm getting out of here. This guy, oh, I can't work with that guy. Oh, I need another job. Oh, I'm getting out of here. This is too hard. Is it a work environment? Oh, it's too toxic here. God could never use me to be a light here. I got to get out of here. What's it going to take for you to quit is the question. And see, what God wants to do is he wants to build your bandwidth and build your maturity and build your muscle, not so you can walk around and say, I've been through all this. Look how, no, it's so that he will get the greater glory from your life. That people would say, he's been through all that, she's been through all of that, and yet she's still got her hands lifted, she's still praising, she's still walking with the Lord, even though I know what he or she has been going through. Remember this, a faith that cannot be tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. The diamond that does not stay until the chiseler is done with it will not be as beautiful. It's still going to be beautiful, but it's not going to be as beautiful as it could be. And this is the heart of what James is saying here, is when you are under a trial, don't run away. Stay under it and ask God to grow you. Many of us in this room are the results of what God has brought us through, not around. So that's the reason Third of all, and finally, here's the result. Notice, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you might be perfect and complete, lacking in, can you give me that word? So this is the result, so that we be mature. Synonym, grow up. Complete, that we would understand the fullness of God's purpose and plan in our life. Perfect, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, uh, perfect here uh, is some of your translations. It means full development. God is developing you. You may feel like you're in the rotisserie, but the longer you leave the meat in, the softer and more tender it gets. And you're just right now twirling on the rotisserie, and God has the heat turned up real high, but he's trying to tenderize you so you'll be more tender to his voice and to his leadership in your life. Right now, you're too tough. You're not ready to get out of the rotisserie. You're not ready to get out of the fire. So the Lord knows 225 at about 19 hours is better than a lot of heat in two hours. That's tough meat. And a lot of us are tough. We're too tough in a bad way. And so God has to humble us, put us in the rotisserie, and get us seasoned and tenderized so he can actually use us. Some of us have not been broken yet, and we need to be broken. We need to be broken. One of the most dangerous prayers you could pray is ask God to break you. But when you ask him to break you, be ready for him to break you. And remember this sermon. Remember this text, more importantly, that he's doing it to steadfastness be built in you. So this is not an isolated text, by the way. Notice Romans 5 on the screen. Paul says we rejoice in our sufferings. This, this is why, same Greek word, knowing. We know this. That suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character.
lasting genuineness of your faith would be more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the eschatological reality of joy, that I'm looking for the revealing of Jesus when He comes back. But right now, I've got to hold on to Him, and, and here's the good thing is you're not holding on to Him as much as He's holding on to you. You just have to ask Him to fill, fill you with His Spirit so that you actually see He's got you. Chill out, bro. Chill out. I know it's hard, but, 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 but stay under it. Don't run from it. Stay under it. So, friends, this is the perspective. There's, there's a, a response we should have. There is a reason we should respond that way. And there is certainly a result. We'll be mature, complete, and we'll finally understand the fullness of God's purpose for our life. So, let's close by looking at our example par excellence the Lord Jesus, the way that he faced trial, and the greatest trial. Notice the author of Hebrews says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Man, this sounds like James. You would think that James grew up with this guy, Jesus. Notice, who for the joy what, did Mark, what, what marked Jesus as he approached the cross? For the joy set before him endured the cross. Same Greek word here, endure, test, same word, same word. That there was a steadfastness even in the life of Jesus. So how did Jesus respond to the greatest trial? Well, remember, Jesus didn't just fall into this trial, did he? You and I fall into him. He certainly, from our perspective, he certainly didn't fall into this trial from his perspective. This was the predetermined plan of God that Jesus would leave heaven and come to earth and come and rescue a people like you and like me for himself. And so our trials catch us by surprise, but this one certainly did not catch Jesus by surprise. Now, this is what I want to ask and answer. What is the joy here that motivated Jesus to endure the cross? For the, for the joy set before him, what, what was the joy? What did he have his eye on? Well, I agree with Dane Ortland when he says it was the joy of seeing his people made invincibly clean that sent him through his arrest, death, burial, and resurrection. The joy of Jesus was the people who he came to rescue. The joy is that he saw on the other side of the cross was the very people he came to save. And it was that joy, it was seeing the sin that you and I would be forgiven of and, and the salvation that would be ours. It was that joy that transcended the pain and the burial and the arrest of the cross. So the author of Hebrews says, listen, I know you're going through a tough spot, but, but listen, as you go through it, consider Jesus for the joy that was set before him to accomplish the Father's will, to make his Father smile. He didn't quit. He could, have, he, didn't, he could have taken himself down from the cross, but there was two things going on. It appears in Jesus' mind. He was thinking not only about accomplishing the Father's plan, the very reason that he came, but he's also for the joy of seeing his people have their salvation completely atoned for and paid for so that we, the people of God, could spend an eternity with him. So I don't want to diminish your suffering at all. 
at all. There's no pain ship, there's no pain level, there's nothing you've been through, friend, that remotely compares to the Lord Jesus brutally being killed upon a cross. Again, I'm not diminishing your pain. I'm just saying, in relation to what he went through, it's not as great. Jesus was the perfect Son of God, and yet he endured the brutality of the cross for us. And so, although your pain is real, you know where you need to get your eyes on today? Jesus. Jesus. Consider Jesus. Ask God to feed with the Holy Spirit so you'll see Jesus. So as you go through hell on earth here, you just keep your eyes on Jesus. It's Colossians 3, right? To keep your mind in heaven on the things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand, keep your eyes on Jesus. Ask God the Holy Spirit to keep your eyes on Jesus and to want to glorify God in your body. And can you say this today, and I put a prayer up there for us on the screen, that if you're a Christian in this room, I hope this prayer is true of you. I hope that you would say this to Jesus. Jesus... You endured the worst that the world could offer. This is you, okay, talking to your Lord. You endured the worst that the world could offer. You are seated at the throne of the Father. And by faith in you, your spirit indwells me. My sins are forgiven. I'm clothed in your righteousness and your strength. And so I remain under this. So let's pause there. What is this for you? Like you're really tempted to just bail, quit, run out. But what do you need to tell Jesus today? Jesus, you give me the strength. I'm not, I'm not quitting. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to stay under this the way you stayed under the cross and, 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 and you look for the joy in front of you. What is that? Because notice, I'm clothed in your righteousness and your strength. Righteousness means this trial cannot diminish your salvation, nor can it diminish your experience of Jesus. I can remain under this. Notice, so that, here's why, you can produce in me wholeness of life and faith. Friends, some of us need to be more whole in to be more balanced, more shaped by Christ. The school of that happening is what He has you in right now, combined with everything He's brought you through, with your eyes in the future of what He's going to take you through. I know you don't want to go through this. I, as your pastor, I wish you didn't have to go through it. Because it hurts to see me, hurts me to see you hurt. But at the same time, our God is sovereign. Our God is good. And He has brought you this far, and He's going to use all that to stabilize you. So I want you to bow your head with me. Close your eyes. Just a moment. There where you're at. Brian, I know all of us could name a trial or trials we're under right now. Would you ask God? Right now, ask him. Say, Father, what are you inviting me to do under this? How can I glorify you in this? What's in me that does not need to be there? And you're using this to expose my chronic complaining, 
my chronic worry. Not managing my anxiety properly. Looking to other things, bitterness. Just for these few seconds. That's the Holy Spirit. What is he producing in you? If you weren't in this, ponder that for just a moment. Father, apart from your spirit, we cannot remain under this, and we won't. So even as we sing in just a moment, oh, Father, about our Lord Jesus Christ and the sure and steady anchor that he is, would you, Holy Spirit, strengthen our will? Would you enable us to stay under this? Knowing it will not crush us, for Christ is in us. Oh, but it'll shape us. Lord, may this book of James change us individuals, as individuals. May it change me, Lord. For I know there are areas in Jordan's life where I need to grow up. I need to mature. Thank you for what you brought us through. Thank you for what you're right now carrying us through. And thank you for the promise of your presence, for what you're getting ready to take us through. Thank you that you're sovereign. Help us to be more like Jesus. Not for our glory, Lord. Not an arrogant grit, but a, a grit that says, i got to lean harder on God's grace that I would walk in love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness. The fruit of the Spirit would bubble out of me. God, would you grant us an active faith? And we pray this in Jesus' name.